You know, uh, it wasn't too long ago I went to look for, if you've been to uh, hardware stores and just, and some of you that do construction, I went to buy just a plain old eight foot stud. It was, it was over $10. Think about this. Who can afford to pay for these things? That's what Nehemiah 5 is about, by the way. If we think that inflation is just today and, 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 and the poor getting poor, then you've not read uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 because that's what it's about. It was getting horrible at that time. So we, we want to, I'm going to read you this account and then we're going to discuss this. But if you would please take your Bibles that you bring the church with you every Sunday. Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they would be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Then I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, We will give it back, and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took, and, and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possession who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this <laughs> promise. By the way, if you're Jewish, it's not Amen, it's Amen. But, you know, if I say that, you'd probably say, this guy don't have to say amen, but amen to us. Let's pray, and then let's, let's look at this, and uh, let's, talk about, let's talk about this passage. It's a very, uh, it is a very current theme for today. Father, we thank you that, uh, that we can meet together as your people. Lord, we come here to worship, and... Uh, uh, Lord, we just ask, Father, that as we, as we sit here and as uh, hopefully, Father, that you will teach us through your word, Father, that we, we may leave this place 
And Father, that we may apply that we may apply the very truths of this word in our everyday lives, Father, that others may benefit from it and you may receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an age where there is an abundance of struggles. And among those struggles is the one that exists between the, the haves and the have-nots. Now, everybody in this group, you know, it all depends, you know, it's kind of a relative thing. If you're to look at this group over here, you can go to some countries of the world and they would look at us and say, every one of, uh, every one of you is are, are, are a have. You know, we would look at each other and say, well, there's a have, there's a have not. But, you know, in some countries, if you live in, if you live in the United States, you're a person that's in the have category. Uh, we're a very affluent people, very affluent people. Uh, it, it's amazing that there are some people in this world that I was, I was just recently looking at a film where this, uh, I'll not even tell you what country it was, one, one, one young boy, the nation is, 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 so, is so hungry, but the young boy was relegated to eating dirt. That, that was his meal, dirt. Uh, we are... There's not a person in this room who's not going to have something to eat today, probably. There are people all over this world who are just begging for just a morsel of bread. There are the haves and the have-nots. But in this study through the book of Nehemiah, we, we come to the place where the people engaged in the building of the wall are, are, are now facing that very issue. There, there's nothing for them to eat. It has come to a place where the work on the wall has become a drain on the, on, on, on the underprivileged. They, they have no money. There's nothing. There's no grain for them. There's nothing for them to eat. Uh, and they want to provide for the families, and they can't do that. It has finally adversely affected the their families. And, and added to this, the, the, the wealthier classes of the people were taking advantage of the needier classes of people. And, and they were charging, the, the, the wealthy people were charging the needier people exorbitant interest rates. If they made them a loan, they would charge them a, an exorbitant rate of interest that they could never pay back. Never, you know, I, I, I try to go to the bank and say, you know, I'd like to get the same deal that they were getting back in the, in the biblical times. You know, you, you loan your brother some money, you pay back zero interest. My banker wouldn't listen to that. Uh, it'd be nice if they would, but, but, they're, but they're not going to do that because people are in business. They want to get interest back. They want to make money too. But anyway, this, what was happening, this, this exercise of, of, of uh, the wealthy and the uh, underprivileged, this exercise of, of uh, lack of trust in, in each other and lack of trust in God led to discontentment. And then that discontentment led to complaints. Of course, we never complain. Thankfully, we're Baptists. <laughs> but business meeting is coming up. When the, when the cost of living rises, think about it. When the cost of, and, it, and it's rising today, isn't it? The cost of living rises and the necessities of life become less available. As things become more expensive, then you start making these decisions. Uh, do I want to pay my mortgage payment? Do I want to make, make my car payment? Do I want to buy medication? Or do I want to, do I want to buy food? What, what, what's, what's not going to get paid? You know, as things get higher and higher in cost, you decide something's going to have to go. 
you know, uh, anymore. You know, cars are getting smaller. And the good thing about that is, you know, they're coming standard with rear window defoggers so your hands don't get cold when you're pushing it because you can't afford to buy gas. (laughs) But times are difficult, especially for the have-nots. It would do well if governments and manufacturers were to take into consideration these words from the, from the book of, of Ezekiel, chapter 16 and verse 49. Listen, listen to what the prophet Ezekiel writes hundreds of years before the Lord even, even is born on that first advent. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes, Behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Note this, as, as we speak of today's excessive cost of goods and services, it is most costly to those who have the least to spend. If you don't have the money, if you don't have the money to buy groceries, if you don't have the money to buy gas or to make a mortgage payment or buy medications, whatever, if you don't have the money, listen, it is most costly to the people that can't afford it. There is the age-old problem that continuously plagues humanity. Plagues humanity. It is the sin of that those who can, those who can, those who are able, live sumptuously while there are those who must learn to live without. In the, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 20, Jesus talks about the, the, the rich man and Lazarus. And he says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. But you know the story. The rich man gives him nothing. And the man languishes by day after day with not a a morsel of food to eat. While the rich man lives, as the Bible says, sumptuously. I'm reminded of a story of of an elderly, elderly widow lady who every day she would go to her cupboards and her cupboards were practically bare. She might find a can here or a can there or something that was left over from yesterday and she would pick it up and that would be her little morsel for the day. And she was so thankful. She said, oh Lord, you've blessed me. I have so much because you've blessed me. You've given me everything I need and every day you provide for me. And she would continue day after day after day, just get up and loudly just praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for providing for me. And living next door to her was this, was this atheist this young cynic and he would just listen to her and he could hear he could hear praying through her house and just out into out into his yard where he would sit there on his veranda and just uh, faring sumptuously and he would hear her say thank you Jesus thank you Jesus he says I want to fix her he said I want to prove to her that there is no Jesus that Jesus is not God so he goes out and he, he gets into his brand new pickup truck and he goes to the grocery store and he fills it full of bag after bag after bag after bag of groceries. He spends hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars buying bag after bag after bag of groceries and he loads up his pickup truck and he stealthily drives over to her place and he unloads this, these groceries on her front stoop of her home. And he goes up and he 
presses on the doorbell and he hides behind a bush. And as she comes up, she sees this. Her whole front, her whole front stoop and beyond into the yard is filled with groceries. She says, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And he jumps out of the bush. He says, look, that's not Jesus. That's me. She says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He said, lady, that's not Jesus. He didn't bring it. He said, I brought it. She says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. There is a God. He says, lady, there is no God. It's me. It's me. It's me. Tell me, how do you think that there's still a God? When I brought these groceries, she says, God, Jesus delivered the goods and he made the devil pay for it. As it is today, so it was then. The people that had the most need were the most numerous. The people that have the most need are the most numerous. It seems that those who were of the poorer classes also had the larger families. And because they had larger families, guess what they had to do? They had to trust God for his providential care. You see, when you have great substance and you're affluent, well, you certainly trust yourself. God didn't do this. I did this. I earned this. I provided for myself. But when you have nothing and you get something, you say, God, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't even have this. So you learn to live in God's providential care. Those with the greater substance had the fewer family members and should have used their abundance. And this is the problem back then. The people that had the smaller families and they were wealthy, they should have used their wealth as a way to assist in the wants and the needs of others, shouldn't they? So as you look at our text for today, does it cause you to wonder as to how these poor people got in the situation they're in in the first place? You know, they did not start off poor. These people, when they left, when they left Babylon, they came with Ezra just a generation before. When they, when they, when they left Babylon, there are 40,000 of them that left Babylon. They came and they were wealthy. They had money. What happened to them? Were they poor managers of their money? I'd, I'd like to read from the, the, from the book of Ezra. Uh, if you would look, I think we might even have it on the, on the screen for you. But in, in Ezra chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, and we'll look up through verse 11. Listen to this. It says, Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Then verse 6 of chapter 1 of Ezra says, all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. The people that remained behind, thousands and thousands and thousands of people stayed behind. They stayed in Babylon. Things are good for them there. They were productive. They were fruitful. They were affluent. Many were wealthy. And they gave up gold and silver and money and all kinds of things and, 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 and cattle. The people that left with Ezra, the 40,000, they had, they had money. They had cattle. They had, they had enough to buy lands and vineyards and farms and fields. They were doing well. What happened? Did, did they use it poorly? 
Not only did the Jewish population give the money, let's look at verses, let's look at verses seven and following, Ezra chapter one. It says, also King Cyrus. Now King Cyrus is the is the is the head of the the immediate Persian Empire. King Cyrus brought out of the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Methedreth, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. Now this was the number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 10 to 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind and 1,000 other articles. And the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them up with all the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. They were going back with money in their pockets. What happened? The work, the work on the wall. They were so anxious to complete this wall to protect Jerusalem. By the way, you need to know something. People were not living in Jerusalem. They were living around Jerusalem, but not living in. You know why? Because it was, it was a, just a pile of burnt up stone. The place had been razed to the ground by the Babylonians. There was nothing there. There was no place to live. It was just a bunch of rubble. But they were building this wall so they can build up the city. The wall was a protection for them. But the work on the wall became the cause for the people to lose their source for income. They could not work their farms. They couldn't work their fields. They couldn't work their vineyards because they're working on the wall. Plus, they were still obligated to pay the taxes due to the king. You know what? You can, I have been, I've been from, I've been in most of these 50 states. There's a couple I haven't been, but I, you know, and I've discovered something. You've got to pay tax on every one of them. You just can't get away from it. People want their money. You've got to pay tax. And you know what? If you don't have any money to pay tax, guess what? You've got to find a way to drum it up. So guess what they did? They sold their fields and the farms and the vineyards and, and then they start selling personal properties and children. Now, those who had affluence were loaning money to those who were in need and were charging them high interest rates. Those who had homes and lands were forced to borrow and mortgage their properties. And in order to do so, and by the way, this is they were paying an interest rate of 12% a year. Now, you might say, that's not bad. But if you have zero dollars, 12%, it must be, it must be a million dollars you've got to pay. Because if you don't have it, you can't pay it. How do you pay 12%? You're borrowing money and say, yeah, I'll, I'll loan you money. So guess what they were doing? Because they had nothing to pay them with, they began selling their children. They were selling their sons and they were selling their daughters so that they could get money to pay their taxes and pay high interest rates to money lenders so that they could survive. So what does all this lead up to then? Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, Then I was very angry. And might I add, who wouldn't be? I mean, you'd be angry, wouldn't you? 
Uh, let me ask, have you, ever been, have you ever been angry at anything? Have any of you ever been angry? I mean, surely not as Christians. Proverbs 15, 11 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when people get angry, you know the first thing that starts moving is their mouth. <laughs> and they say stupid things. You know, when you say something dumb, there's no way to get rid of it. It's kind of it's out there, and it just kind of just floats in air. And, and any ear that's out there to hear it, you know, you, not only do they hear it, it's locked into their, you know, <clears throat> I know nothing about computers. One of these days, I'm going to learn how to turn my wife's computer on. I'm serious. One of these days, I will learn that. <laughs> and if you think I'm kidding with you, ask my wife, because I do not have to turn it on. She's got this password. She won't tell me what it is. <laughs> Listen, it took, me, it took me a whole bunch of work to learn how to work the, do the rotary phone. <laughs> but there's something called a cloud, isn't there? Okay, well, when you, when you get angry and you say things, that pe- the people that are hearing you, they got in their head this cloud. And everything is stored up and they never forget it. It's always there. It is always there. If you say something stupid... It's always there. So Nehemiah, understanding this principle, has to deal with this. So let's talk about a few things. There, there's, there's an expression that seems to be more of a part of an earlier generation. I don't hear people talking about this anymore. But, you know, I used to hear it a lot when I was a younger, a younger person. Have you ever heard the term, don't get your nose out of joint? Is that familiar to anybody? What does that mean? Don't get your nose out of joint. One of the words for anger is the word, and and, and it's an an appropriate word. It's the word, because it goes right with the computer lingo that people talk about. It's a word called app. You know, my wife was going to do an app thing yesterday, and I had, I had no idea what she was doing. I thought maybe the whole global system might collapse if she kept on going. This, you know, I don't even know what an app is. People say, oh, you have to go, you have to put this on your app. <laughs> I said, I'm saying, doesn't anybody use pen and paper anymore? But anyway, the word for anger, for one of the words for anger is the word app, A-P. Not A-M-P, you know, but A-P, app. In Genesis 2-7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The, the nose, the proboscis, the olfactory, the nose, is normally thought of as an organ for smelling. Right? That's what we do with the nose. We smell. You don't see through it. But it's also the organ necessary for us to continue life. Did you know that? That you have to have a nose, according to scripture. By the way, did you know that sometimes, and even today, they will cut off a person's nose? Because 
in biblical days, the nose means a person's life is in his nostrils. You cut off his nose and you ruin his life or her life. But the nose is a, is a symbol of a person's life, not just what you for smelling, but it's a matter of life. So then listen, the nose, as a person gets angry, what does the nose do? It dilates. The nostrils flare, don't they? You ever seen that? Nostrils begin to flare. It, they dilate. It's not like when you get your eyes dilated, how the pupils get real big. Well, your nose, when you get angry, get that look. And then you begin to speak with that nose flaring out like that. All kind of crazy words come out. So the, the anger is seen in the opening or the widening of a person's nostrils. Or you can say, don't get your nose out of joint. Because that's what exactly what it means. That, that anger is seen in a person's nose. Because it flares. It dilates. And it expresses, visually expresses what is in your heart. But let's get back to Nehemiah. His anger is not the app anger. There's another kind of anger. His was a, an anger that is called... Kaz, K-A-A-S, Kaz in, in, in the Hebrew. And it means to provoke the heart or to grieve. This is the same word. You know, when you read in the scripture how it says that God got angry. Well, God doesn't get angry with ap anger where you say stupid things. But his anger is chaos anger, Kaz anger. Kaz means you've provoked his heart. You've grieved him. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You provoke his heart. So it applies to God when we affect the heart of God and provoke him due to our rebellion and our sin. His heart is, is torn when Jesus goes to the cross and they're just ripping his body to shreds through this crucifixion, the heart literally just ruptured because of sin. The heart was just totally broken. Chaos. Chaos. So before Nehemiah said anything to anyone with his chaos anger, not ap anger, but Kaz anger, before he says anything, he took the time to get himself together and to decide as to what he's going to say. Do you see that? You see how he, he says, I consulted with myself? Wouldn't we do so much better in business meetings if we consulted with ourselves before we said some things? Or wouldn't we do so much better at work when we consulted with ourselves before we say something to our boss? Wouldn't we do so much better when we're talking to our neighbor and we consult with ourselves before we speak to them harshly or rashly? So he says, I consulted with myself in verse 7. (coughs) 
Here's what he consulted about. He consulted and decided as to what he was going to say. Isn't that smart? Think about, before you just blurt it out when you get mad, think about what you're going to say, when you're going to say it, and how you're going to say it. I will guarantee you, if you stop and consult with yourself as to what you're going to say, when you're going to say it, and how you're going to say it, listen, a lot of peace can ensue. You just take a few moments to think. So in verse 7, the first thing he does, excuse me, the first thing he does is he doesn't go to the poor people. You'd think normally you would do that. Say, try to calm them down because they're the ones with the complaints, right? You go to the people complaining first. You don't go to the banker first. You go to the people complaining first. How do I get settle down, settle down? But he goes to the rulers and the nobles first. And he talks to them about it. Matthew Henry. I love to read Matthew Henry. I don't know if you like Matthew Henry commentary. You know, you know so I've read a zillions of commentaries over the years. And excuse my language. Taint none better than Matthew Henry's. I know it's old English style. You know, you're not going to find anything about computers on there, cars or bicycles or electricity or plumbing. But what he has to say about the Bible is fantastic. Listen to what he says. Matthew Henry aptly states, let no man imagine that his dignity sets him above reproof. Nehemiah realized that what was needed was not rebuke, but reform. You could win a whole lot more friends if you're finding, if you're trying to find the solution instead of the problem. You know, if you go to somebody and you're mad at them and you you create another problem because you say things that create more problems. Well, go to them after you consult with yourself and instead of a problem, create a solution. And his solution says, look, I got a way that we could reform some things. Let's do things different. He didn't go and say, well, you stupid idiots, what are you doing? He didn't do that. He says, look, here's, here's what we could do. It's a solution. It's reformation. Boy, you know, we should learn that. We need to reform some things, even on our world today. We're, we're, we keep on putting more and more problems out there because we say dumb things. And we aggravate and agitate people. Now, church, listen to this. Nehemiah did not go to the poor classes of the people and tell them, you, you would see, sometimes we, we would do this. He, he, didn't, he did not say this. Look, these folks are the ones with the money. Because yeah, that's, that's a normal thing to do. Settle down. Don't complain. We don't want to get these people upset. They got the money. Let's all play along to get along. You, you hear stuff like that. You got to play along to get along. You know, you, you poor people, don't get your nose out of joint. Right? That's what you would think that we would do. Don't make such a fuss that you'll cause the rich people to leave. We don't want them to leave. 
So settle down. Quit complaining. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. No, he did not do that. But I know some people that might. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. There's a similar account in the early church. And this is what it says. Acts 6, 1. He says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Now, let me just tell you, the Hellenistic Jews are, 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 are Greek-speaking Jewish people. A Hellenistic society is Greek-speaking. Uh, they're Gentiles in, in culture. Okay? And then they have the, the Hebrew Jews on the other end of it. And it says, because their widows were being over, overlooked in the daily serving of food. What was happening, if you were a native-born Hebrew widow, the, the Meals on Wheels bus would stop by and drop off a meal for you. But if you were a Greek Hellenistic widow, maybe next time, if we got anything left, what was happening is the people that needed it the most were not getting it. They were favoring one group over the rest. You can't do that. If, if somebody has a different language than you do, a different culture than you do, a, a different skin color than you do, a different hairdo than you do, you don't, you don't just skip by them. They're part of the church. You take care of the church. That's what was needed. But they weren't doing that. The, the Hebrew Jews who spoke Aramaic were getting what they needed. The Hellenistic Jews who spoke some nasty foreign language were not getting their food. Or in Nehemiah's case, the nobles and the rulers should get the notice and not the common people. But he didn't see it that way. A couple of three weeks ago, on a Wednesday night, I'm coming into church about six o'clock that evening, getting ready for Bible study. Wonderful class, creation evolution. You ought to be there. But I'm coming into Bible study. And I saw a line of people coming out of here with a bag of groceries in their arms. And in my heart, I was applauding that this church understood the principle that people need to eat. People need to eat. We could preach to them all we want to preach to them and get as spiritual as we want to. But you know what? When, 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 when the tummy is hungry, the ears are closed. I, I applaud this church for what it does in its food pantry efforts. I, I do. And there's other things that yins do, and it makes me very, very happy inside to see yins do that. And, and I commend you for that. But let me just close with this final word. We must learn to be careful as to how we approach those who are in the church 
and have need because those who are outside the church are there to oppose us. There are those outside the church who are the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshems, and they're waiting to see how the chosen seed of God is going, is going to conduct itself. How do we conduct ourselves to people who are different than us? Years ago, I mean years ago, I was a very young pastor. We were having church service, and this one young man walked in, uh, disheveled in appearance, long, long red hair, uh, dirty motorcycle-looking type leather coat type thing, and just, just dirty-looking and disheveled, and, and his appearance was, was, was not a welcoming one. But he came in and he sat right to the front as I was looking out to the car. He was right to the front over here. He sat to the front and the people were just staring at him. And I can remember we were singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And as they were singing, he was singing with them. But many of the people, many of the people were just looking at him, gawking at him, like, what are you doing here? I want to ask you a question. Which, which one of the people were worshiping? Reminds me of the scripture. Oh, you're, you're, you're well-dressed. You look affluent. Sit up front over here, close to me. Oh, you're poor. Sit in the back. Did you read that in the scripture? That's not what we're about, is it? In God's economy, we are all destitute, aren't we? For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Because of our sin, we're all going to die. We're all sinners. You know, we're, we're judging people by their appearance and by what's in their pocketbooks, but God judges by what's in their heart. So the way we act, the Tobias and the Sambelas and the Geshems look at us, waiting to see how the chosen seed of God is going to conduct itself. Think not for a moment that the enemy will, take, will not take every opportunity for advantage to expose Christ and his church to ridicule because of the hard-hearted practice of her members. But I have better thoughts about Yins than that. Than that. It, it, it glands my heart to see what this church does, and I mean it sincerely. Jesus tells us, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. The true mark of discipleship is not to say rich and poor, male or female, this color or that color, this party or that party, Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray.
Father, let us learn from this chapter in Nehemiah. Lord, that we are surrounded in a world of haves and have-nots. We've struggled with this since, since early man. Father, may we learn to treat one another with honor and respect and dignity. No matter what country we're from, no matter how much wealth we have or do not have, no matter the color of our skin. But in Christ, we are one, all one together. We're one body in Christ. Lord, that's who you are. That's, who we, that's what you've made us. You've made us to be in Christ. You've, you've called and chosen us to be a part of a body, Lord, that, is, uh, that shows no partiality to those things. We are one body. We're the household of faith. May we live like that and look like that. In Jesus' name, amen. My friend, I want to ask you today, are you, are you of the household of faith? Do you belong to Jesus? I didn't say, do you belong to this church? Uh, be honest with you, I know I might offend somebody. I can care less if you belong to this church or not. My, my goal here is not to get you to become a member of Hazelwood. My goal here is to tell you that if you are not in Jesus Christ, that you'll perish and you'll be separated from God forever. If you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never placed your trust into Him as your Lord and your Savior, you need to do that today. He shed His blood for you. He bore His Father's anger on the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He's ascended into glory. He's, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And you know what? Jesus Christ is coming back. Would you miss that opportunity? Would you miss that opportunity? Are you willing to spend eternity separate from Him?